Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. If you asked your mother, your sister, your daughter, your grandmother, hey, your best girlfriend, what does it mean to be a good leader today? What do you think she'd say? What if the woman you asked was a band leader, a CEO, had hosted her own late night show, or was the first female speaker of the house? What do you think she'd say? I'm Charlotte Gartenberg, and this is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal. This year, for the first time in history, more than 10% of Fortune 500 companies are run by female CEOs. The number of women at the top is growing. And at the Wall Street Journal's Women in the Workplace Forum last month, we got to hear from some powerful women navigating the upper echelons of their respective fields. Each of their voices and experiences is unique, but some of the questions they face, well, some of those ring true for everyone. How do you build a good team? How can humility help you? How do you create a culture of collaboration? How do you get started on a difficult path? And how do you keep going? Today, we share with you how four influential women answered those questions for themselves. Comedian Samantha Bee shares the managerial mistakes she learned when she was running her late-night show, Full Frontal. Former Amazon executive Alicia Bowler-Davis, now CEO of healthcare startup Alto, shares advice on how to lead by putting your people front of mind. Whether your company is made up of a few hundred or 800,000 employees. And we'll hear from Grammy Award-winning artist Samara Joy about the keys to collaboration, the kind that speaks to the audience and the people making the music, too. But first, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. She was the first woman Speaker of the House and shares her secrets for getting motivated and staying motivated, especially in the cutthroat world of politics. She spoke to her editor-in-chief, Emma Tucker. And a note, these interviews have been edited for time and clarity. Here's Emma Tucker with Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. We're very lucky to be sitting in a room full of very impressive female business leaders. And I'm sure they'd all be very interested to hear what lessons they could learn from you. And again, one of the things that you're, you were known for was your ability to rally votes and build, build a consensus. And you were a very effective negotiator. What was the most effective strategy for you in getting something, for example, like the Affordable Care Act over the line? What was your most effective tactic? Well, I come back to a word that I have used, respect. Respect for other people's opinion, respect for the, that we'll call, our title is representative, and that's our job description too, to represent the people who have sent us to office. I'm always asked, what would you say to women who might want to be in politics? And they would say, you know, I could never put my family through that. Mm. I have little children, see, because I came when my children were largely in college. Alexandra was going into senior year in high school, but the other four were already in college. But many of them, I'm trying to get younger women to be running in their 20s and 30s, rather 40s for me. And... They say, I could never subject my children to that. I, can't, I ran one time and my, my child came home crying from school because somebody saw an ad on TV which misrepresented who I am. 
And you just, I, I really honestly believe that we must make an effort because if we reduce the role of money in politics and increase the level of civility in politics, many more women would be holding office and that would be a good thing for our country. But when they then ask me, what advice do you have to women who might want to, and it just isn't about politics, but it's about everything, know your why. I just say to them, know your why. Why do you think you want to undertake this, to be in Congress or to be in the news business or to be in entertainment or to be in the corporate world or academic world? Why, why should you be the one that has that particular position at that time? And how, if you know your why, everything else is justified. My why, as a mother of five at home, was one in five children in America would go to sleep hungry at night, living in poverty. I thought, what? This is the greatest country that ever existed in the history of the world, and one in five children in America goes to sleep hungry and lives in poverty? Went from my own kitchen to the Congress, housewife, house speaker, and because that was my motivation. So I always say a, a test of leadership is, what is the vision of that person? What is the vision of that person? What is the knowledge and judgment they bring to this debate and this situation, this challenge? Are they a strategic thinker? Do they know how they're going to get things done? That's all up here. Vision, knowledge, judgment, strategic thinking, and show them what is in your heart. The more women at the table, in my view, the better. Well, that's, that's good to hear. I want to ask a much more practical question. And for the record, I would also ask a man this question. I want to know whether you think, or how did the fact of raising five children help you when it came to your later career? <laughs> well, the thing is, is that any moms who are here know you have to be diplomatic. It's, you know, you're resolving conflict from time to time. You have to be a cook, you have to be a, dry, a chauffeur, you have to be quartermaster, you have to be referee, you have to be multitasking, you have to be a manager. It is really quite a challenging job to be a mom. And if you happen to be working at the same time, I'm totally in awe of you because balancing work and home is such a big thing. So what does that mean when I'm talking to these people? Well. I guess mostly um, it was because of my why. I knew why I was there. I was there for the kids. If they thought that women shouldn't be there or what that, who said she could be here and all that, that was their problem. That was not my problem. A pretty obvious one, but I have to ask it. When is the US going to get its first female president? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I always thought that we would have a woman president long before we would have a woman speaker of the House. The Congress of the United States, as you say, a couple dozen out of 435, one or two in the Senate at that time, um, it's a bastion of male pecking order for over 200 years. You're going to do it, and then I'm doing it next, and I'll do it after you, and then you're going to. And so, um, so I always thought, oh, the American people are so much more ready than this place. This is not breaking a glass ceiling. This is breaking a marble ceiling. I mean, in my case, 
I got to be speaker because I went out there and won the election, took, got the majority, and there you are. <laughs> it's about the election, and that's what a woman president will be about the election, too. I hope it was soon. I think it would send a message to the world. When you go into that arena, all of you I'm talking into running into office and ignoring the bad stuff the other side might do in terms of ad. Remember your why. And my why are the children, as I said. The, um, Teddy Roosevelt said that, um, he talked about the arena. If you have, don't know his speech, you should read his speech. It's so fabulous about the arena. You're in the arena, you're no longer a spectator. You're an actor, you have to get the job done. So I say to the women, um, in my case, the children side of things, uh, so when you're in the arena, you have to be prepared to take a punch. It's rough. It's rough in the arena. And you have to be prepared to throw a punch for the children. <laughs> for the children. So thank you for okay, the opportunity. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. So the former House Speaker believes in throwing punches. For the children, of course. For Congresswoman Pelosi, you've got to know your why. And that helps you stand up for what you believe in. She is a trailblazer for women in politics, just like Alicia Bowler Davis is in the business world. Davis is now the CEO of healthcare startup Alto. But before that, she was a top executive at Amazon and was the most senior black executive in the auto industry. For Davis, leadership is about people. She shared her lessons on the importance of building empathy with your employees with The Wall Street Journal's Jessica Tonkel. So Alicia, you started out at General Motors as a manufacturing engineer and worked your way up to head of global manufacturing and labor relations. And as you rose the ranks, you continued to stay in touch with the line workers and check in with them. And it's something I read that you also did later on when you were an executive at Amazon. Can you talk about how you did that and what you learned from it? Yeah, starting off as a manufacturing engineer, I was developing tooling for the plant. And so as an engineer, you come into the plant, you're trying to bring a solution. And I learned very early on that I needed to have the voice of the people who were going to use the tooling in order to make sure that I was solving the right problem, that I had their voice um, involved in the process. And then uh, once I decided to actually uh, work in the plant as a first-line supervisor, I learned within two months that you're nothing without your team. You're nothing without really understanding the, the people understanding, having empathy of what their day is like, uh, what it's like to build cars all day long. And so I just learned that. And I was very fortunate to learn that early in my career. And it still serves me well in my current capacity. So you were also the first black executive on Jeff Bezos's S team of close advisors. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Can you talk about what you learned from that experience and what that was like? You know, Amazon is just an amazing company. I learned a lot about being extremely intentional about culture and about what behaviors. So Amazon has these 16 leadership principles. And when I first started interviewing with Amazon, I remember reading up on the principles and I was really looking for how they resonated with me and who I was as a person, as a leader, and making sure that this was a company that I wanted to be part of. You can be a leader of 800,000 people, but when it's time for you to go to the plant floor and really understand what's happening at a specific site on a specific shift, 
You need to do that. I learned a lot about innovating. Uh, speed, ugh, I've never seen anything that fast as far as the speed at which decisions are made and the speed at which um, innovation happens. Um, so I learned a lot um, there. And I also learned a lot about when you have a company of that scale, um, the diversity in the products and the services that you're offering, um, how do you make sure those things that cut across the company, that you're working together as one team to solve that? Question from the audience. What did Alto teach you to do differently from the way you did things at Amazon? So I've been at Alto for seven months. And so I would say leading an organization of 800,000, leading an organization of 1,200, there are some things that are the same, but there are some things that are different. And I think what I've learned at Alto, what it reemphasized to me was it's a new industry. It's a new space. Come in, learn, um, do the work, be humble. And I had to get comfortable not being the expert in the room, but still being able to lead. And so I think Alto really taught me about doing that um, when you're at the top of the company. And I think having a caring culture um, is important. And you can win. Like, you can win with that. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a different culture to be successful. And so I love that. And I want to make sure that's maintained um, as part of our culture going forward. A caring culture, knowing your team, relying on them, allowing yourself to be humble before them. Davis says that kind of culture is not only a joy to be in, but it's essential. Without it, you just might not get the results you expected or that your employees need to thrive. But sometimes, building a caring culture is tough, especially if you're a new boss and you're stressed out. Samantha B knows that firsthand. We'll hear some of her lessons from being one of the first ladies of late night after the break. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Comedian Samantha Bee has always been known for her no-holds-barred approach. She spent 11 years as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. For a big part of it, she was the only woman there with that title. Then, she took on the late-night television world, hosting and producing her show Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, making her one of the first female hosts to helm a late-night spot. Samantha Bee sat down with The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern, and she shared the lessons she learned for creating and managing an effective team. Lesson number one, you might have a no-jerks policy, but that's not always achievable. I think everyone in the room has questions about putting together the right team, yep. whether it's through diversity or through different points of view. How did you approach that? We definitely paid serious attention to creating a diverse workplace, which we knew would, we needed like many points of view to make it, to make the show exactly right. And it was like, it's so desirable. It was just, such, it was just an automatic goal. And then we tried to have a no assholes policy 
tried. It's not always possible. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a there's a right. So, sometimes you hit, sometimes you miss. I try to have a policy of working with people who I'd want to work with twice. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, would absolutely. I want to would I want to carry you forward into another world? I would want people to see me that way, and so I tried to create a framework of people who could work amicably together, work toward an end goal as opposed to working toward like breaking off personal goals and, and having those two things uh, compete. It was a really challenging. I think sometimes I was really good at it because I definitely cared about people and I cared about their lives and I wanted to make a happy workplace. I've made mistakes, I made great, I made great decisions, I made less great decisions. <laughs> As, as any good manager does. But yeah. I think also you'd come at it from a unique position where you are doing such creative and fun yeah. work, but you are also got this team to manage. And I think all managers struggle with, how do I be creative but also keep the thing going? Well, and, and, and the business goes through different phases too because there's, you know, when you're trying to build a show from zero, it really, it, it's weirdly there's an inversion of, the things that you're doing. So you would think that you're doing this big creative endeavor, but actually when you're building a show, I would say that like 70% of your energy is centered on the management of people. And then 30% of the time you get to really have fun and be creative and throw a lot of like spaghetti at the wall. It's a shaky time in the business world. You, sure. You may, have, you may have heard. I've that. been, I've heard a few things. Have you read the I've, Wall Street Journal? I've read a few things in the WSJ. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. When you think about the challenges, especially around Full Frontal being canceled and, mm -hmm. and trying to pivot through your career, yeah. is, do you have some advice? Do you have things you go back to and say, yeah, that was a moment and I learned this from that? Well, well I did learn that at this you know, and again, I can't, I can't really speak for everyone, but at this stage of my life and at this stage of my career, I really, there was, when my job ended, I, I definitely had that panic. Like, you know, you have this, all your, you just, you're all a glow, not in the good way. Everything is tingling. You're like, I've got to, what am I going to do? <laughs> and um, it took a minute for me to really calm down and see that the best, the next best course for me was to decide what it is I really loved. Like, what do I love? What do I actually love to do? And what are the elements from my entire career in political comedy that I would be doing, whether or not someone was paying me, whether or not someone was watching me, what are those nuggets that I would like to that no matter what happens, I'm going to carry those forward. I'm going to work on those things because those things are the things that are extremely fulfilling. Okay, we do have one audience question. Okay. What was one of your less great management decisions and how do you wish mm. you had handled, handled it looking back? You know, probably I, there were people on staff I kept on staff too long and tried to make them fit when the, when the fit was wrong even though the people were great, and sometimes it was just a bad fit, um, keeping people and trying to like, almost like trying to convert someone into a good partner when you know it's not going, you know, trying to create a partnership where there couldn't be one or it wasn't working, but extending that too long and making it bad for everyone, I think that I, I think that I was very guilty about, of that. 
I wanted to control every decision that was made. It created a terrible bottleneck. I needed more people who could make decisions on behalf of the show at the beginning of the show. So I created this very narrow pipeline to approval of certain things. And, you know, by design, that's what I thought that it was supposed to be like. And it, it ended up being really, really frustrating for people. And it took a long time to get anything done because I was so tired all the time. And sometimes you just can't, you're just not capable of making good decisions. I think that bottleneck was actually very, um, not damaging, but it made things very slow and kind of grinding at first. And but it don't didn't worry, have to be we that. have AI now to make the decisions. Well, so. I'm just gonna rely on, for my next big company, it'll be just all chat GPT, yeah. no problem. Samantha B's advice, recognize when things aren't working and be ready to make a change. And delegate. You don't need to have all the power, all the time, over all the decisions. You might end up as the bottleneck blocking the way to success. Grammy-winning jazz performer Samara Joy is also new to managing a team, but that team is her band. And their best work comes from collaboration. She says collaboration starts with listening to one another and to musical history, even if the best results call for bending some of the rules. She spoke to The Wall Street Journal's Kim Last. People say that jazz doesn't have any rules, but if you're actually into jazz, they have a ton of rules. Mm -hmm. um, and the trick is really what you do with those rules. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you build in, within that foundation of your training? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm thinking back to, like, my first lesson um, with my voice teacher. She's incredible. I still, you know, keep in touch with her today. Um, but I sang for her, and I remember her being like, okay, you got something, you know? <laughs> your resonance is beautiful, your voice is beautiful, but it sounds like you don't listen to jazz. And at the time, I didn't really, I, I guess I understood what it meant, but um, I think that the name, you know, the main rule of this music is ear training, you know, and mm. being listening and immersing yourself in it. Similar, I guess, to writing, you know, you can't write if you've never read or, or you don't know the history behind writing or you've never read somebody else's words and tried to, you know, be inspired by that in order to write your own words. I don't know, I'm trying to make it, maybe I'm reaching, but um, <laughs> but I, I felt the same. I was like, okay, I have the sound of gospel in my ear. I have the sound of R&B and soul. I know what that music sounds like. It's a part of my musical identity, but I wasn't exposed to jazz. And so once I started listening, you know, and, and started really getting into it, I was like, okay, you know, I can, I have freedom within the rules, you know, and I have freedom to be myself within this, you know, um, within this genre. It's not so constricting that I feel like I have to only sound like Ella or only sound like Sarah in order to succeed. It's like literally being inspired by these singers and by the musicians who created the music, you know, once they got into it, they changed it mm -hmm. through their own individual uh, contribution. And so that's how I feel, you know. You know, you said something in a recent interview that struck me that, you know, I think you're scratching at here on stage about I'll never stop growing and I'll never stop learning. And I just think that's a great mindset to sort of be in. And so I'm curious, you know, when you're assembling and, and, and working with bandmates, um, what are some of the lessons you've learned from the musicians you've worked with over the years and, and their career experiences in all of this? Hmm. Well, I think... Well, being a band leader, even having that title has kind of been something to get adjusted to because I've always felt pretty shy. You know, even in church, you know, singing for people is like, okay, my turn is done now, you know. 
Um, but kind of stepping into that, you know, the, the advice that I got from my from my professors and my peers was just to be aware, you know, like I'm I'm not trying to be uh, trying to be a dictator or anything like that. What I would hope for, you know, on the bandstand and on stage um, is to have a connection, a collaborative, you know, experience with the musicians as well, as, and and so that the audience can see that every time I do a show, you know, people come to me afterwards and they're like, you and your musicians are so connected, and you know, we can see the spontaneity on stage, we can see you guys, you know, playing off of each other and not being so stale and something, you know, that's like, okay, this has been done, it's been rehearsed. Um, so I think that's, that's the main lesson that I've learned is just to be aware, you know, and be um, open in the moment. Be prepared, mm-hmm. but be open to whatever happens in the moment. You know, I think people turn to music as a moment of escape or mm-hmm. reflection. And, you know, jazz has historically been a genre of resistance and a big part of black history. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious also how that history has shaped your approach to the arrangements you're choosing, to the to the artists you're studying, and to and to how you're you're shaping, you know, your next projects. Hmm. Well, I'm always aware of the fact that jazz is black music, and I'm kind of I know that I'm kind of carrying the torch, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, it feels weird to kind of come to terms with it, but I'm I'm consciously aware of their contributions. Like, I never want to be like, I'm stepping in here and I'm just making it new again. I'm bringing it back. It's like it was already created before I even, you know, was introduced to it. And so I honor them with their, with, uh, you know, their compositions and in performing them and in saying their names, you know, and like Duke Ellington and like Abby Lincoln and, and so on and so forth. But I, I always remain aware of the fact that it's black music. And, and the fact that I, you know, didn't know about it until a couple of years ago is kind of like embarrassing a little bit. But... <laughs> it's just another, it's it kind of like, I don't know, it's just like, oh, wow, this is a part of, you know, my history here, you know, as an African-American is this music. You know, it's, it's wholly, you know, mm-hmm. created and born here. Um, and I get to, you know, be a part of it and I get to um, rediscover a part of my identity, I guess. For Samara Joy, just like for Speaker Pelosi, her inspiration grounds her work and motivates her as she makes music and as she leads her band. And all along, she says she keeps her ears open to her history and to her team. That's what makes them really swig. (laughs) What's the best advice you heard from these four formidable females? Let us know. Email us at aswework at wsj.com. Like the show? Tell your friends to subscribe and give us a five-star review on your favorite platform. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton and Michael Laval are our sound designers. Jessica Fenton composed our theme music. Editorial support was provided by Falana Patterson. I'm Charlotte Gartenberg. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.